0: 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this morning, take your Bibles there on your device or your paper Bibles, remind you once, remind you a hundred times, don't ever lose track of your paper Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's read these first 10 verses together, Okay? Just for some context, um, we'll explain why in just a little bit. I don't want to get ahead of myself today, but familiar verses to many of you that have known the Lord for a long time? And for a handful of you recently saved, even this year, maybe verses you're reading for the first time. So if we're not careful, they can be hard to understand, but I think God intends them to be very simply understood um, and a great encouragement to our hearts especially in times like these. Paul says in verse 1, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, Because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in this body... We are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether we are at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Father in heaven, help us this morning as we preach this text, as we understand this text, and apply it to our lives, even in these times. May we leave a change that encouraged people, certainly more joyful than when we came. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Have you ever been driving down the road? I'm certain it's happened to you, and you're driving behind like a construction truck, and that construction truck hits a bump, and some debris starts flying off the truck, it starts bouncing on the road, and inevitably heading towards you. Have been in that situation? That's encouraging. That's comforting, isn't it? I was traveling recently, and I was following behind a semi-truck. And uh, I've had so many windshields shattered over the years just driving with this kind of stuff. I'm driving behind a semi-truck, and it's after an ice storm in this particular state. And I'm just driving along 70 miles an hour, and this massive sheet of ice just flies up off the top of the semi-truck and starts flying in the air. And so it's kind of like time stands still for a moment, right? It's like, I'm going to die if that thing comes through my windshield, right? This is a big piece of ice. And uh, you glance to the left, you can't move left, you glance to the right, you can't move right. You look in your rearview mirror, and this is like boom, boom, boom. I can't slam on my brakes. I'm just going to drive right through this big old honking piece of ice and see what happens. (laughs) And uh, then you pray. So a lot happens in about four seconds. Right? And Piece of ice hit my car, and thankfully didn't go through the windshield. But those kind of things happen so often to me, and I don't know why. When I was thinking about this text, I kept thinking about what Paul's talking about in chapter four and the the recurring physical threat that life was to him. They just kept bouncing towards him, hitting him. Threat after threat after threat became a reality, a reality, a reality. How in the world do you get your focus off of these unavoidable continuing threats that often become realities to your physical existence? These are threats to our physical existence. Well, the Apostle Paul uh, is going to teach us in this text what he began to teach us last week. As a matter of fact, really, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5 is a pretty thorough explanation, uh, a thorough, therefore, application of how and why he looks at coming glory with such confidence, with such joy, with such anticipation, to the point where we'll see in the grammar of the text, I believe, that he's so fixated now On the realities, the practical realities of this coming glory, he rarely, if ever, gets distracted by the inevitable threats to his physical existence. These these threats that are always bouncing our way to harm us. By God's grace, he's been able to discipline himself by the Spirit of God to consider these things. And. We're going to walk through these realities together in these 10 verses. I'm not going to give you an outline this morning because really there's a handful of glorious realities that await us that are just listed here. And as I said before, they're really explanations of what we considered last week in verses 16 to 18 of chapter number 4. Okay? What's this first physical reality? Well, it's the reality of a new spiritual body. A new spiritual body. We see the explanation of this body in the first four verses of chapter number five. Now, what we're going to do, because Paul does this in these verses, he uses one verse to explain another verse, and he kind of bounces back and forth. So we're going to just kind of walk through this explanation of this new spiritual body, and find out why we need to be fixated on the coming reality of this new spiritual body to encourage our hearts as to our future certain glory that's to come. Paul says here, for we know that if our, the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. Now, the word tent is only used two times in the New Testament, and both are in this context. And I think that's significant for this reason. How many of you go tenting? Right. How many of you um, have been existing in a tent when a storm came? I remember we went to Calgary, Canada years ago on a teen missions trip. Were you on that one, Pastor Kent or Pastor Steve? Um, remember that? We were setting up the tent at the kids' camp, and we... We could see these dark clouds forming over the Canadian Rockies in Calgary. And uh, we were told by the the pastor there that he had seen on the forecast that a bad, bad storm was coming. Well, we could see it long before we could feel it or (laughs) whatnot. And this thing came, and he says, we've got to get this tent up before that storm comes because these could be 65 to 75 mile an hour winds. I was thinking, well, why put the tent up anyway? He goes, if we, if, we, if we stake it down good enough, you know, we, let's just hustle. Let's get to work. So we went to work. And we got about 95% of that tent put up. And you could hear the storm, and you could see the storm coming across this vast valley long before you felt the effects of it. And it was howling. It was moving like a freight train. And it hit our camp, right? And it just took that tent and turned it into shredded material and flying shrapnel. We had some kids that got hit, went to the hospital from the metal. Was that you? No, Zach. dad. That no. was okay, yeah, Zach. Okay, Zach. He, Zach was holding hanging on. And it actually became kind of like a balloon piece. It got thrown, and it was crazy. It was crazy. Um, I've been tenting with my kids in our backyard, and it starts to rain, and the wind starts to blow. Right. They're temporary dwelling places, aren't they? They're not always safe. As a matter of fact, in storms, they're never completely safe. And that's what Paul's trying to, that's one of two ways he's thinking here. We're gonna discover another way he's thinking here as a Jewish person. He's a tent maker by vocation, right? So he's thinking that way here. These are temporary very uncertain dwelling places, especially in times of difficulty and storms, right? That's why he says here they're, they're always being torn down. But he's also thinking as a Jewish person, he's thinking back to his understanding of the Old Testament. And what do we know about the Old Testament? We know that the Israelites coming out of captivity in Egypt dwelt in tents tribe by tribe. And we know that those were temporary dwelling places. You got two and a half to three million people in a wilderness wandering for 40 years, and they're always pitching and taking down their tents. What an agonizing process that would have been, right? And then you think about the tent of God, the tabernacle. And you remember those chapters in Exodus that describe its detailed structure and infrastructure and the purpose and its beauty, right? And every time that they set up camp, they set up their own temporary dwelling places, and the Levites put together the tabernacle of God with great difficulty, great difficulty. And he's reminding us here by this tent analogy, again, two times it's used in the New Testament only here, that both as a tent maker, the fragility of these tents, and also thinking as an Old Testament Jew, the temporary nature of those dwelling places, as they looked for something by faith more permanent. More permanent. And he says here, very confidently, for we know, for we know, this word, "know" is to have information to be sure, but it also means to be well-equated with information that he was about to write. It's a powerful word because Paul's not experienced physical death yet, and we know this tent from this context is in reference to his own personal body, therefore in reference to our physical bodies. So he's not experienced physical death yet, so he writes clearly having this information from God via divine inspiration. So this is God's information of future glory to him and to us, all in relationship to our new spiritual body that is to come. It says here that if this tent is torn down, well, it's inevitability, right? It will be torn down. Jesus spoke of his tabernacle being torn down do you remember how he was misunderstood in mark chapter 14 and verse 58 jesus said i will destroy this temple that is made with hands and in three days i will build another not made with hands and those who in the peanut gallery were thinking about uh, the solomonic temple and then jesus later on clarifies in john chapter 2 verses 21 and 22 Where Jesus says, no, the temple that I'm speaking about is my own body. Jesus' own physical body would be torn down. It would be crucified. It would be mutilated. It would be killed and entombed. And he would raise it up on the third day. And he says in verse 2 here, In this house we groan. You recognize that word from other parts of the New Testament, don't you, if you've known the Lord for a long time, particularly Romans chapter 8. The Bible says that the effects of sin on us personally and on creation collectively causes both to groan. This is a guttural, deep agony. This is an agony, really, of all agonies. It's used two other times, one in the book of Mark, chapter 7 and verse 34, and the same in the book of Acts, chapter 7 and verse 34, if you're writing in the margin of your Bibles. In Mark chapter 7, the same word is used of Jesus as he spits on his hands and touches the ears of the deaf man and he looks up to heaven and the Bible says he groans with pity and he cries out to the Father, be open. Be open. He's agonizing over the malady of this soul not being able to hear and with recreative power causes this man's ear gates to be open in Acts chapter 7 and verse 34 Luke recounts the same words as he describes the reality of God's people being physically oppressed in Egypt while enslaved in captivity the groaning, the guttural groaning of enslavement, slavery, oppression for years. He says, in this tent, we groan. And he says, we're burdened. I'm not going to spend a long time in this word burden, but it just simply means it's a burden that's unable to be borne. I mean, go back to my silly analogy of debris coming at you on a freeway from a construction truck. Could you... See yourself living that way 24-7, 365, driving? Debris, 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 debris. Imminent threat of death. We know from chapter 4, that's what Paul's been realizing. As a matter of fact, we know from First Thessalonians chapter 4, if you want to write that down too, verses 13 to 18 and 1 Corinthians 15, pretty much the whole chapter, that there was a time where Paul could speak of death and resurrection and getting a new body as if he was not going to face death. He really felt that he was going to see the Lord return and not see physical death. Right? But by the time we get to chapter 4, go back to chapter 4 and verse 8 with me real quickly here. You remember this from a couple of weeks ago. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, and not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the tent, the temporary dwelling place, the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so death works in us, but life in you. By the time we get here to 2 Corinthians, Paul's pretty certain he's going to face physical death before the Lord comes, even though he still holds on to the reality of the imminent return of the Lord, where he wouldn't have to. So he's writing this material... Groaning and being burdened. And he's writing this material feeling like there's absolutely no way he's going to live. Go back to chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians with me very quickly, and let's look at verse 8. We studied this months ago. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, and we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. He's come to a maturing moment here in life where he's certain he's going to face physical death, which makes the glory of the promise he's about to explicate even much more meaningful to him. So it's clear to all of us that we too dwell in this physical tent that's being torn down and we are burdened in it and all of this heaviness is unavoidable for us apart from the imminent return of the Lord which promises in 1 Thessalonians 4 that when the Lord appears those who are alive and remain will not see physical death right? but those that have experienced physical death will be raised first and then we'll all join the Lord together in the air The Lord wants us to live with the balance of both realities. The reality that the Lord could come back in the next minute and we can escape what remains in our groaning tent. Or like Paul, God is okay with us enduring, looking to the glory of our hope explained in this path is with death in his windshield. He says here in verse number four, Part of his agony and part of his burden was he doesn't want to be unclothed. He loves his body. He doesn't want to experience a disembodied state. This is powerful. For those of you that have known the Lord for a long time, and even those for you that have known the Lord just for a few days or a few weeks here, we're going we're gonna to... March through this chapter as quickly as we can, or these ten verses, or these handful of verses within these ten, to describe to you, really, the sacred nature of the human body. Paul realized his body was of sacred origin. He realized he was finite, created by the infinite. He had no problem with a creator-creature distinction. I've enjoyed this body. This body is a gift from God, and he says... I have death in the windshield, I'm about to die, and I don't want to be disembodied. I don't want to be found naked. I don't want to be a spiritual being without a body. And I really believe the Lord wants us to know the sanctity of the human body. We do live in a tent that was created by God. It is the indwelt tent of the Holy Spirit, It is the New Testament church age tabernacle of the divine. Paul is stating here that he really loves the gift of physical life and all that comes with it. He loves to smell, taste, see, touch, speak, listen, work and enjoy life in his tent-making vocation, enjoy life at the fellowship with other believers inside the local church. This is all a good thing. And when God created Adam and Eve, he called it good. And that included certainly physical form. But I also think Paul is addressing something else here. You know, he's already addressed the reality that we have this treasure in earthen vessels in chapter 4. We all have been transformed by the grace of God in Christ spiritually while we dwell in these tents that have also been called fragile earthen pots. There's something else going on inside here in the early part of the first century. It's kind of like, for those of you that know church history, it's kind of like a proto-Gnosticism. Okay. It was full blown pretty much 30, 35 years later when the Apostle John wrote as a full blown false religion or philosophy of that day. These philosophers of sorts would have denied the existence of anything in the spiritual realm being coupled with the physical. Right? That's just one aspect of the depth and breadth of all that they taught and believed. The spiritual realm, because it was pristine, it was perfect, it was unsullied, it was pure. And how in the world could something perfect and pure be coupled with that which was broken and being torn down? That didn't make sense. It didn't compute to these folks. And the two could never mix. It would be those who denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ as well in time because of what they believed as opposed to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 12-19, which we'll look at a little bit later in relationship to Christ's resurrection. So Paul says here, I don't want to be unclothed. Though experiencing some radical difficulty in his body, death in his windshield, there's a deep enjoyment of the same as he enjoys being a part of God's triumph with his people. So when we talk about the glory that is anticipated, which includes the giving of this new spiritual frame, likened unto Christ's resurrected physical spiritual frame. Though death is in our windshield, he's still enjoying his his tent and he's enjoying his tent for all the reasons we've mentioned, but you've got to go back to chapter 2 and verse, verse 14. He's enjoying all of those human things that tents can enjoy, mostly because he's part of a greater purpose, which is the gospel triumph of God. That's why he says in Philippians one twenty one, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So while he's becoming more regularly distracted by the glory, it's never completely distracted away from the glorious agony of being part of gospel purpose and gospel triumph in the New Testament local church. As we dwell with this treasure in these broken pots, I don't want to be unclothed without purpose in either state. So governed by the Spirit, the believer knows there's a sacred aspect to physical humanity. We know this, Psalm 139, is a great cross-reference text here particularly. The body is to be respected, cared for, used for holy purposes while we sojourn on this earth in this gospel purpose. So Paul says, I want to live. In this old tent... For gospel purposes, and I'm longing for, not a tent, we'll see in a little bit, something of a more permanent place that can never be torn down, to worship the Lord forever. So, God tells us in this passage, we will never be without a frame. We'll never be without a physical frame. So let's go back and see what Paul has to say here from God about not having to ever be in a place where we won't enjoy having a body. He says, if this tent is torn down, verse 1, we are having a building from God. If you know the Greek text, go back and study it. The grammar seems to imply here very, very clearly within the immediate context that when one is done, the other one is commencing. And we're going to find out later, by an eras middle, God has prepared Right? That this frame has already been prepared and is awaiting. It's interesting when you just look at the grammar. We can talk about this more if you're deeper and wider in your theological understanding of the Bible. But it's fascinating here that Paul wants us to concentrate on this glorious reality uh, in this way. We are having a building from God. So the way our glorified bodies are described here, we will no longer have tents, but buildings, houses, and dwellings. He goes from using the word tent twice to three different synonyms describing the permanence of what our new spiritual body will be. He says, we are having. This is something that we're already experiencing without having experienced it yet. In other words, it's imminently awaiting us. You can study it on your own. This may be a little bit too deep and wide for a Sunday morning context because I don't want your brains to be distracted. But Jesus did say, I will never suffer my righteous ones to see death. Obviously, we know that means spiritual eternal death. But in the context in which he said that in the Gospels, physical death is a reality, but yet we have to wonder, understanding what we know about the rest of progressive revelation, what that really meant physically. Certainly the body is going to die, but when you look at the grammar here, we are already having, there seems to be an absent from the body, immediately present with the Lord reality physically as well. And he says here that this house is not made with hands. Paul is not saying that this body is not created like our current body is. It's certainly created. He's just describing the spiritual nature of these new bodies. They will be perfect, glorified, spiritual, and someday resurrected, likened unto the glorious body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says here in verse 1, it's eternal in the heavens once given these spiritual glorified bodies, they're they're permanent like Christ's. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a few pages with me, and let's uh, read a few verses here together, okay? In relationship to these eternal in the heavens and these buildings from God, not made with hands likened unto our Christ's resurrected body. Verse 42, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable tent or body. It is raised an imperishable house, dwelling place, tabernacle. It is sown in dishonor. We're all born in sin. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, who is Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also, so also are those who are the heavenly. Just as we have been born the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Great text to cross-reference there in the margin of your Bible right next to these verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. A comparison of the tent, the temporary, to the building, to the dwelling, to the tabernacle, the permanence. And he says here in verse 2, he says, we're longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. The longing is what it is. It's a form very much like, in the Greek language, to the word lust. Epithumia means to lust for something sinful or wrong, but it's also used in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, of the believer longing for the sincere milk of the word of God. Primarily, the word epithumia is a longing for something wrong, but it does use, in that context, for a lust for something very good and necessary to our lives. Paul uses a form of that here by saying we have this longing, this deep desire for something that is good and holy. He says here in verse 3, inasmuch as as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. He's, He's writing here that his longing of not being disembodied will not happen. So that we would not be found naked paul clearly indicates here that once the human spirit is embodied and as long as the logos of god jesus christ was and is we will never be without a physical reality to us some would say there's a physical aspect to being made even in the image of god and i wonder if that's not the case In eternity past we can say god's always had the highest regard for the human form ephesians chapter one teaches us of god's eternal plan to save us by christ who was the invisible logos the son of god from eternity who would need to take on the form of flesh to be made in the likeness of man to die for our sins I believe it was the pre-incarnate form of Christ, in Christ in bodily form, who was in the Garden of Eden, who formed with his own hands the body or the frame of Adam. I believe it was Jesus who leaned over and put his mouth on the lips made out of formed dust of Adam's mouth, and he breathed mouth to mouth into Adam, and Adam became a living nephesh. I believe the Bible teaches that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. I believe that was a literal walk. I believe that was a literal pre-incarnate embodied form of Christ fellowshipping with Adam and Eve in the garden. The Bible teaches that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament was a pre-incarnate form of Christ. He had a human body. So long before the logos of God became in flesh to become the savior of the world, the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, he even had a pre-incarnate body. With the emphasis the Bible puts on the human form, even for our savior, we can see why Paul never desires to be found naked or without a body and says that will never be the case for us. So we can know this, verse 4. So what is mortal will be swallowed up of life. And how do we know? (laughs) Because of verse 5. It is God who prepared. The language here is an aorist middle. This is God of his own volition in time past, determined, This is an infinite, divine, omnipotent, omniscient determination. This is what God has decided that is going to happen for you physically. And he's even going to add a down payment for that reality. And he's going to take that down payment and put it in the form of a person who is indwelling you right now to make sure that that happens. Maybe you bought a house in the past and there's, the only way that you could get that house was if someone gave you a gift and that person has to fill out a gift letter, right? And this gift um, is something that um, you're not gonna get a permanent dwelling place unless the gift comes through, right? And that gift giver becomes the guarantor for the closure of that loan, The Bible says in verse 5 that we've already read that God has prepared this glorious coming reality for us in the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells you, and he is the down payment. That's what it says here to this reality. He's the pledge of the promise to come. He He is the third person of the Godhead that indwells you now that will be with you as the divine comforter of God until you breathe your last and then breathe your first immediately in the presence of God. He is the one who cannot lie as well, who will see this through as he saw through and underpinned the support of the life of our human Jesus all the way through his agony week to the point where he breathed his last. To the underpinning of his resurrection with resurrection power. It's God who's prepared this for us, it's the Spirit who guarantees this reality for us. As we close this morning, we near our close, let's go to Romans chapter 8. Let's look at some similar words Paul wrote here. Verses 18 to 25. He says here, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we're learning in 2 Corinthians 5 a few morsels of that glory, right? So realities of that glory. For the anxious longing of the creation. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would also be set free from the slavery of corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. Remember chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians? We focus not on the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For who hopes for what what he already sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as we wrap up here. That's why he says here in verse number 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. It's a little parenthetical phrase here that helps us understand by faith, the Holy Spirit of God, we realize in our hearts that what we cannot yet see with fallen eyesight is clearly already a spiritual reality in relationship to the spiritual frame that's to come. And it's a glorious reality to be able to exist in physical frame as our Savior does. Sinless, pure, glorified, and certain. Paul is saying here even grammatically, (laughs) by use of the word tent and then three synonyms for a permanent dwelling place, By what he says here about what the Spirit of God is as a pledge, and by what he's saying here where you walk by faith and not by sight, he's saying, certainly you must see by now. The comparison and the contrast between your light affliction in your tent compared to the eternal weight of glory in your perfect spiritual dwelling place. The one far outweighs the other. Well, Paul says, in light of all this, what now? Verse 6 You better be of good courage, <laughs> right? Knowing this, knowing what's ahead, so we get our eyes off of the rapid incoming threats of death in our windshield, and we get our eyes on the certain glorious future. We ought to be an encouraged people. Therefore, being always of good courage. He says again in verse 8, We are of good courage. Both verses indicate that this is our confident disposition, even though we're at home in this body now, this tent. We would much much rather be at home in our spiritual frame, but nonetheless, we live encouraged in both. The reality now and the prospect to come. Paul goes on to speak to our living in light of this confident faith that we have a coming glory in particular to our new bodies. You see in Paul's writing, there's always an ethical imperative frequently follows a doctrinal indicative. (laughs) I wrote that down a long time ago in one of my seminary classes because it's true. He's just given us good doctrine of one aspect of a coming glorious thing, time period for us. And every time... That he gives us doctrine. He gives us a way to live. Knowing this good news, knowing this glory, and you can write down here 1 John 3, 1 to 3 next to this context, having this hope within us, it purifies us even as he is pure. What does he go on to say? We have this ambition to do something, and that's to verse number 9, please God please God. Therefore, we also have as our ambition strong word, whether at home now or absent, to be pleasing to him, to be pleasing to him. Being pleasing to God is simply pursuing holy living as described by the scriptures. Being pleasing to God is not performance-based living as a Christian, as I've heard some describe lately, but being pleasing to God is walking by faith and not by sight. It's moving into or unto the character of Christ-likeness on a gradual basis as we consider this imminent reality of either seeing him without seeing death or seeing death and seeing him at the Bemis seat, which is described in verse number 10. Why do we allow this doctrine to compel us, not only be encouraged, but to please God? Because verse 10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the power of the next phrase is incredible. So that each one may be recompensed. You're not gonna stand at the Bema seat when you pass. Your physical tent is finally torn down you immediately go before the behemoth seat of Christ. You're not going to be standing there with your grandmother, your mother, your brother, your sister, your aunt and uncle, or another church member. You're going to be by yourself. The purifying eyes of your Savior will be there to discern something about how you lived your Christian life. As a matter of fact, we know it's going to be somewhat of a terrifying time because of verse 11, which we'll get to next week. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, and we'll talk about that next week. But Paul says, look, if we understand coming glory, and we love our lives in light of the hope of that coming glory, your life will be pure even as Christ is pure And that that moment at the bema seat, when your works are judged, whether they be good or bad, the context says here, you're facing a day of reward. So his focus is not here to end up in verse ten and say, "Wow, you're in trouble." Really, the trajectory of the whole text is be encouraged be encouraged walk by faith not by sight because today you may stand face to faith with jesus and he can say well done thou good and faithful servant and be rewarded by the king that's the trajectory now of the faithful recently repented corinthian believers in that church gotten their life right They're moving forward. They're being threatened from inside and from out, right? Death's in the windshield, but Paul says, go, go, go. Look at this glory. Look at what's coming. Allow it to be your distraction. And the beam of seat will be a time of glory and praise and joy for you to be embraced and for you to embrace the person of Jesus Christ and to know his reward and his favor. You say, will I ever get to that moment where I know I'm facing, breathing my last on this earth, and will I experience dying grace? I hear that a lot. Right? And I've seen believers get to that moment more times. I've been with them more times than I'd like to admit. And I've seen some experience dying grace And I've seen others who have been in anxious moments say, I'm not experiencing dying grace. What's wrong with me? I will tell you this every believer that I've been with at their deathbed that said, I'm not experiencing dying grace, I'm in agony, and I'm afraid, 100% of the time, it's typically because they had not been getting enough oxygen and they're on a ton of drugs. When we get to this moment, and Paul's there. We've already read it. He can is, is about imminently to breathe his last. He just doesn't know. Dying grace is experienced through the practice of a discipline of grace, my friends. And it's grace disciplining our minds and our hearts to dwell upon the glory of the promise is particularly outlined just in these first four verses of chapter 5. Fix your minds and hearts there. Fix them there. So I'm standing next to my dad's deathbed, right? He's on oxygen because his lungs can't bring in enough, right? And I'm whispering in his ear this text. The mind contemplates these realities... Because the reality is because of the certainty of the pledge of the Spirit who tended to the body of Jesus with great spiritual intimacy. And He promises the same to you and to me. Because it's sacred to Him. Dad, He's about to usher you. You won't be naked and it's going to be a lot better. My brother pulls the oxygen apparatus away from his nose, and in 10 seconds, literally, he's gone. We always say, they're in a better place. And that becomes so cliche, it seems somewhat irreverent, doesn't it? Because now the whole world uses it. And it may not be true. But to me, we're in a better body. <laughs> and it's perfect, and it's glorious. And it's certainly a tremendous aspect of our, our hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's focus on those things in these times. Okay? Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you for the beauty of this text just because it's inspired and preserved. It's God-prepared, it's Holy Spirit-promised. and gives us great confidence as we mature our hope and our understanding of it as we live with all these things rapidly coming at our windshield that threaten our existence. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for helping us this morning with the reality of who you are Thank you, Father, for the indwelling of the Spirit that can illuminate this text and its significance to our minds and our hearts. And when we get up tomorrow morning, we might be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen.